podcast is a collaboration between Spark Writing and Working for Change series and scholars in writing and rhetoric in an effort to create resilient strategies. We are pro-Black, pro-Brown, pro-women, pro-Indigenous. We envision this podcast as a healing justice project seeking to transform the impact of BIWAP on the field of writing studies. Creating coalitional gestures will take you on a journey. We will explore what healing means in writing studies by conversing with scholars, teachers, activists, and writers of color. We gesture toward healing and creating coalitions of women of color in order to remedy the silences because our culture, stories, and unique experiences continue to sustain us. We celebrate our traditions, our struggles, our triumphs, and our world as many of us are still searching for connection recognition, belonging, and legitimation while honoring who we are as critical writing studies practitioners who also delve on the margins of cyborg and queer identities. Hello and welcome to Creating Coalitional Gestures. I'm Iris Ruiz, your host, and I am really excited to be able to host our guest today. Um, and we are going to be featured on the big rhetorical podcast carnival that we're really excited about. And um, I have a special guest with me here today to be able to talk a little bit about what it means to be returning to the new normal or what people are calling the new normal. Um, I would you know, just like to call it as, um, why are we calling it normal? Is it a new normal? And we're gonna be talking about this topic today in addition to the spread of misinformation that's been going on through the COVID era. Um, and we're gonna be talking a little bit about what that means and particularly in relationship to anti-racism. So before we get into this really exciting, provocative discussion, I would like to give my guest, Cindy Chavez, a chance to introduce herself. Hi, thank you, Iris, for having me. I'm so excited. I'm nervous, but I think this topic is one that uh, people are trying to discuss, but at the same time, also avoiding it and just trying to, you know, sweep everything under the rug and just, you know, accept things as they are. And one of the 
the topics that you brought up is this new normal. And so I'll get into just my perception on that. But thank you for having me. Um, as Iris says, I'm, my name is Cindy Chavez. I'm a um, lecturer at UC Merced, but I'm also uh, an instructor at Merced College. And I've been teaching in higher ed for about 17 years now. So I'm excited for this um, time in my life. But at the same time, when I think back about all the years that I've had, all the students that I've had, um, it's been a, a beautiful and um, evolving experience. So my background is actually, it's interesting because I started off in the humanities. I was an English literature major. Um, and then I actually went into cultural studies and North American philology, which is philosophy and literature together. And then um, as I kind of evolved in my education, I actually went into educational psychology because I wanted to learn more about how people learn. And so um, my teaching experience and really what I, I base my teaching philosophy on is um, inclusion, but also connection. So what connects us all um, and bringing it down to just a human experience. And I, I take it down, you know, even in the classroom, it's like the amygdala, like the oldest reptilian part of our brain that we have and what what that means, you know, in terms of like connecting us as humans and recognizing that the outside may be different, but the inside and our emotional experiences are um, connected. And what I do, um, really, my research is really broad, but not, um, not necessarily um, extensive. I, I try to focus a lot of medical humanities and what and how I ended up in that field is um, as a literature major, one of the things I really uh, researched and read about was trauma theory and disability studies and how that evolved into medical humanities is because really it falls into so many different umbrellas. It falls into psychology. It falls into um, in the humanities, obviously, social sciences and medical um, field. And so I I'm obviously delving into that. I would like to you know get my own research lab um, eventually. Uh, so that's kind of been in the works. I've been in the talks with some people. I wanted to I've wanted to do this for years, but now I feel it's a time because again, it's a new normal. So thank you. Sorry, that was a really broad introduction. Oh no, thank you. That's so very very interesting. We definitely have to have another conversation about medical humanities and medical sociology and all of the different elements that go into that um, as well. And I wasn't I I didn't know that there was a connection there with uh, disability studies and being an outgrowth of that. Um, but, well, you know, there's been a lot of talk about what it means to um, not only bridge divides between different disciplines, but also about uh, decolonizing the canon has been one thing. And there's also been criticism about bringing in different um, socially justice-oriented theories, such as critical race theory in the classroom. And it's definitely been more pronounced um, since 2016. And we can see the executive order that was put into place in 2020 by President Donald Trump that basically made it illegal for any federally funded organization to use critical race theory as a lens for training and for teaching and things like that. And, you know, as we're considering going back to the new normal, I just wanted to play a little snippet of a podcast where Kimberly Crenshaw, one of the biggest um, voices, right, with critical race theory and intersectionality, um, is speaking a little bit about what this moment means, just to kind of kick off our conversation. So let me go ahead and get that.
Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, quote, this is a sickness that cannot be allowed to continue. Please report any sightings so we can quickly extinguish, close quote. Donald Trump's disturbing September 5th tweet paired with his claim that, quote, teaching this horrible doctrine to our children is a form of child abuse in the truest sense of those words, close quote. What is the sickness, the doctrine that Trump says is, quote, being deployed to rip apart friends, neighbors, and families, close quote? It's critical race theory, or really any of a whole group of interrelated social justice ideas, like structural racism, implicit bias, or privilege, tools for talking about and addressing persistent inequities in U.S. society. Trump's September executive order on combating race and sex stereotyping banned any training addressing racial or gender diversity for federal employees, government contractors, and the U.S. military. The effects were immediate and chilling, not just the end of workplace diversity trainings, but academics forced to cancel lectures, research projects suspended, curricula scrubbed for fear of running afoul of what's being called the equity gag order. All right. So I was actually going to go back and look for that tweet that Janine Jackson mentioned in her little introduction to the podcast there talking about, you know, what's going on with CRT. And I just realized that, um, yes, Donald Trump was banned from Twitter. He was banned from saying things like this. So any thoughts on that? What's interesting because um, obviously people have asked me about my perception on critical race theory. My husband, who is not in academia, he's obviously um, curious as to what I think about it. So then he can take it to work and kind of inform people. And I told him I get kind of mad. And it's because I went and paid for this knowledge. You know, I went to school to learn about literary theory and critical theory and whatnot. And then all of a sudden people think that they know about it. You know, I spent hours years sitting there learning about this and people think that they can just read one tweet and know everything about it and it makes me angry because it's not it it's not that easy to understand and and what i mean it's when we think about critical race theory and the way i explained it um to people who aren't familiar with it is you look at a house when you look at a house you can look at it as a homeowner you can look at it as a seller, or you can look at it as a potential buyer. Every time you look at the same house, it's going to be different depending on where you're at in your mind frame. So when you use critical race theory, it's looking at a subject and a field and a group of, we're talking about academia and even you know K-12 um, curricula. And when we think about it is we're looking at from a different lens. Now it's like, what was it trying to teach? You know, we, it created, you know, and I'm not here um, questioning or, you know, undermining someone's experience in K-12. But when we think about what I went through as a student in K-12, this need of perfectionism, which as uh, you know, it's so frustrating because students are having like, it needs to be perfect. And that doesn't exist. But that was instilled in us, again, as a framework that things need to be perfect. Um, individualism. You must be able to do this on your own. That doesn't exist. Okay. I mean, in the, in the real world, which I hate that term too, but in outside of the school system, individualism is not welcome. You, you should work together as a team to get things done. 
um, quantity over quality, lots of essays, lots of papers, lots of assignments. So when I look at critical, when I, I try to think about critical race theory in terms of like tr explaining it to other folks outside of the field, I it's it's hard for me to say this is what it is because it's a lot more complicated. And like I said, you and I both know when we learned about this in um, in our school, our education, it wasn't just a tweet. Right. <laughs> and that makes me mad because I wish it was a tweet. It would have been cheaper, but it was, it's not mm -hmm. that easy. It's very complex, mm -hmm. but um, yeah. That's so in now. thinking about, you know, this misinformation, and as you said, you know, when you're approaching something important, such as your education, people approach it from different angles, right? Depending on your own positionality. Yes. And um, yeah, and one of the things that um, strikes me as very odd with critical race theory is that it actually comes out of an intellectual tradition, just as you mentioned. And out of that intellectual tradition, there was just a whole big body of knowledge that was created to be able to address right social injustice. And one of the things with critical race theory that people, uh, you know, who are fond of it, who find it very useful as an analytical tool, one of the things that they use it for is to tell what um, is called counter stories, right? And where you can um, use fiction in a way to talk about real circumstances, right? So real things yes. that take place that deal with racism without, you know, using people's names or, you know, the names of the institutions in which these occur. So given that we can actually capitalize and use counter storytelling, let's go ahead and see if we can do a little bit of that. Um, here, as we talk about what it means to enter back into the university under these types of divisive ideologies as a woman of color who is going back into the system, the educational system that in California has definitely made a commitment to anti-racism. So the reason why I'm suggesting counter storytelling is because if you want to tell us a story about somebody you know, um, you know, or something you read about, but you don't want to mention any names, you know, that's a possibility. But basically, let's talk a little bit about what this means as a woman of color going back to the university into this new normal with these divisive ideologies, but also after COVID. Wow, that's, that's, it brings up a lot of emotions and a lot of ideas because, um, you, when we talked about, and you mentioned decolonizing academia, that's one of the things that I've really kind of set my mind to do. And I think about my own teaching and what I've done and my own experience as a student of color, um, first gen student, my parents are immigrants. And I, I just remember not being, I just felt like I wasn't included in the conversations. I felt that I needed to check bigger boxes, more boxes than my peers. And Obviously, that was never stated. You know, they always, you know, and I say they as this like omnipresent being, but the concept of power hoarding. Um, when I am going to be in the classroom face to face after this, I'm removing all power structures. I I felt that I've done that, but as always, students come in because they were in, they were taught that as an instructor, they're the person of power. And while I do give grades which again, that, that's another topic as well. The fear of like not passing. I don't want students to come into my classroom with fear. Um, I don't want them to come in 
and have fears of me. While we live in a world um, where that will be possible, that they come in with these unknowns, I want them to feel welcomed and I want them to know that I'm working hard on decolonizing this system. And and it's going to take time and it's going to take more than just one semester. It's going to take more than one year. It's going to take a lot of work on my end as um, uh, an instructor, as uh, a person who takes my platform seriously. But being able to give students information, not just what I feel is right, because there's times where as humans, we are biased and that's fine. But at the same time, knowing what's um, what's going to push them to succeed. Uh, and that's where I'm at with this new normal is that I am working on decolonizing my classroom because it is frustrating when students come in and they're so apologetic. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I'm like, why are you sorry? And then I realized that they've lived in this like undermining um, structure where they were, you know, subservient to this higher being, whether it's the teacher or principal or somebody else. And I don't want them to feel like that in my classroom. And that's that's one of my new normals. That's one of your new normals. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, that's a big one for sure. Because, you know, if you're right. There's all of these power structures that come into place. Some are vivid and some are hidden. A lot of them are actually hidden, but it's that's really encouraging in thinking about going in and trying to break down some of those uh, power relationships. And luckily we have some, you know, we have some freedom as educators mm -hmm. of what we can do yeah. in our own classrooms, unlike some of the, you know, high schools or K through 12 institutions. Um, but let's not get it twisted. Like we don't have all the freedom. Yes. We yes. are still... Yeah, we're still sanctioned by parameters. We're still, um, you know, circumscribed by parameters, right? And so with that said, and being that we do have administrators and we work for writing programs and we're in writing studies and they have certain course learning outcomes. Um, I know, you know, you and I, we share that we work at the same writing program and our writing program, for example, has presented an anti-racist statement and we're going to be working towards building an anti-racist writing program so but we've been on COVID yes. and right we decided <laughs> so this while we were right we decided this while we were in quarantine yes so we haven't done this face-to-face -face. so what are you thinking about that like um, in terms of going back we still have these parameters and we want to decolonize the classroom but we cannot assume everyone's going to be on board. And they're not. Mm -hmm. I mean, I no one has to say anything for me to feel it. And I've explained this to many people. Um, again, if we're looking at people may see me and they're like, oh, okay, so you're you're working here, you do this. But other people don't look at me the same way. Other people have come in and I've, even in my own neighborhood, I mean, I've lived here for a while where uh People don't think uh, I would live here, and it's just a regular old schmegler neighborhood. But I've been questioned as to me trespassing on my own property, um, and yeah, sometimes I I get back from the gym, and sometimes I roll out of bed to drop my daughter off at school. You know, I'm human, and so there's these moments in life where you are reminded difference, and that's that's in society, that's at work. Um, there's a reminder whether it's stated or implied, but reminders that you don't belong. Um, there's reminders of anti-racism is racist, is what I've heard. 
whether directly or indirectly. I've, I've learned this term, reverse racism, like no other. As an employee, as a teacher, at, in, as a student, I didn't know. Um, you know, I watched a lot of South Park, and not to quote the, quote, the great South Park legends. And one of the things was, I remember it mentioning reverse racism. And I thought, what is that? And it was such a, a, a term that was not used daily, but I've heard it so much now. Um, since, and again, maybe my ears are just more aware. Maybe I'm recognizing that I will always be different in this setting and that's how I'm going to roll. And I'm not going to hide, which is something that I am struggling with because I have my parents, because they were illegal immigrants, um, they taught us to hide a lot. Don't make a lot of noise. They say, no, you just go with it. You know, and it's one of those things that were instilled in me. And I didn't re realize that until one of my students brought it up. How can my parents tell us that? And I thought, oh, was it just my parents? And then I realized it's this fear of being recognized as different or not belonging. And even if, even though I was born in the U.S., um, I've lived with these little things that, again, microaggressions come in different forms. And that's the hard part about microaggressions because you think you get along with someone really well. And then all of a sudden, bam. And I'm like, where did that come from? You know, and then I, the more I started thinking about it, the more I felt like, oh, they just don't feel like I, I'm part of this environment. So um, going back to this like counter storytelling, there's a lot of stories, as you know, um, Iris, we have a lot of stories to tell and, and they're learning. I, I like to tell these stories in the classroom as well, because I feel my students will have more weapons and, and, and I'm not meaning like physical weapons, please don't take that as the more, the more to defend themselves with. And that's my goal as an educator as well. Thank you very much for that. Um, so when we talk about students being able to defend themselves and you being able to pass the tools onto the students to be able to do that, what do you think, what, could you give us a little picture of what that might look like in the classroom? Because a lot of times, you know, we talk about wanting to empower students and everyone has like a different definition of that, right? And, um, and as you said, like, depending on where you're coming from in your own positionality, it affects you. So especially thinking, coming back after COVID, coming back to this commitment to decolonizing the classroom and coming back to practicing anti-racism, um, what does it mean for you to empower your students? I learned this from my students. My students have taught me to use my own voice. And I didn't realize the power of my voice because of the position I'm at, because I've always, you know, again, society kind of made me feel this way without really recognizing it. But my students have taught me to use my voice because they are so empowering. I look at them and they have so many wonderful goals. Like when you talk to your students, they just, their dreams are amazing. And I'm just like, do it, do it. You know, they, they want to build this. They want to do a nonprofit or here. They want to do activism here. And their enthusiasm is so inspiring that I need to keep going. I need to keep pushing them and say like, you got to keep going. And they'll contact me after they're in my class and they're like, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, you have these goals. Use, don't give up. You know, I had a student once say she wanted to go to medical school. And I, and she's up, but one of my professors here told me that it's really hard to get into med school. And I go, and, you know, like, why, why don't let that stop? Because she was, she contacted me. She thought, I want to change my major. I want to go into something else because this professor told me it's really hard to get into med school. And I go, you obviously can do it. 
you're extremely bright, you have that as your goal, why not? Don't give up. Even if it's hard to get into med school, there's so many different schools that you can go to, you know? Don't feel like it's just these three schools that are out there. There's so many different opportunities. You can do a post-bac. And then I felt like I need to, I need to keep that in my own life. Like if I want to do something, I need it. Like my, my lab, um, I have been told, I, and I, I've said this story uh, to other um, colleagues that I, I said, you know, I think I was just mansplained research. I went in to talk to um, somebody in a different department about potentially working together and creating a lab. And keep in mind, at that time, I was pregnant with my daughter. So this is like five years ago. I said, listen, I'm, I'm actually pregnant right now. But when I come back, I'm going to come back with a vengeance. I want to open a lab and I want to do research. And I realized I they spoke to me the way they spoke to my students. What's well, really hard to open a research lab. It's really expensive. And at first I said, yeah, you're right. And then I thought of myself, what I would tell my students. And like, yes. And why? Okay, so you get a lab, but I can't get a lab. And all I wanted to do is kind of use their framework as a benchmark to start like, hey, I want to work with you just to collaborate. I want to, you know, we're thinking medical school is, you know, in in the works at UC Merced. And I want to potentially start, you know, with the medical humanities and do a lab there. That way we have this two writing program and the medical school linked together this way. And again, um, I had to Think about what I would tell my students if they had a roadblock. And it's, you got to keep going. Even if they don't think you can, you you have to focus and you'll get there. It may not be linear, but nothing's linear ever. Mm-hmm. You know, we've gone through circles and roads and whatnot to get to where we're at. And I have to use that to model for my students. Yes, definitely. Um, yeah, you see more said we're on the horizon, right, of... Uh, just growing and growing and growing. I think we're going to exactly. be growing. Exactly. There's so many opportunities. Yes. Yeah. yeah, we're growing so much. And uh, just to mention a little bit about our student population, we have um, about 70% that identify as first-generation students and then over 50% that identify as quote-unquote Hispanic um, and belonging to Latinx you know, culture, races, and ethnicities. And then, um, you know, so we're basically the most diverse EC out of all of the UCs. And, um, you know, we want to talk a little bit more um, about approaching and empowering our students. They said that UC students are the most diverse class in history. And we're coming back after quarantine and they have a really big population of transfer students. And, um, you know, I'm just wondering, everybody has their own brand, right, of social justice pedagogy, social justice education, and you were talking about empowering students. So how do you feel about teaching critical race theory in your classroom? I read a really good quote online about critical race theory, and then they said, somebody wrote, it doesn't matter if you tell me not to teach it, I'm still going to teach it. You know, and it's Mm -hmm. like, this is the old school teachers who know that I do what I need to do to help my students. And if it's teaching them about using their voice and recognizing that people will say, this isn't racism. And I, I've heard that many, very many times. And I said, don't tell me what racism is. As a person of color, as a child of immigrants, don't tell me how I should feel. Because I don't know if you've had this um, issue, but a lot of people are like, it's not always about race. And they said, it is actually mm-hmm. it is about race and it's it won't be stated 
but we get judged within 16 seconds of seeing somebody and somebody looks at us and again, our brain's just going automatically and they're going to judge us how, on how we look. Mm-hmm. And, and that's scary because I think about all the times that either I was ignored at a conference or I wasn't asked about my opinion or um, I wasn't included in something. I, I felt maybe it was just me. Maybe, you know, I, I didn't speak up enough. I'm such a timid person, you know, things Then I recognized maybe they had their own implicit bias, which is she doesn't know. Mm-hmm. And so when we think about critical race theory in the classroom, it's about including our students' stories, okay, including their stories. Um, including their experiences um, and in, and showing that their experiences are valid, not, well, it was a long time ago, which again, or your parents are here now though, right? It, it's always this like kind of justification. Well, you're fine. Well, you survived. You know, it's like, no, but do you see the trauma that someone can carry on having to suppress their experiences of, you know, food, um, insecurities or dealing with um, other financial fears or DACA fears or getting DACA removed. You know, there's a lot that our students are going through and critical race theory is critical mm-hmm. <laughs> because yes. I'm going to teach it no matter what. Mm-hmm. And people could <laughs> say, oh, it's not in the curriculum. It's not, it's academic about, freedom. it's academic freedom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and then I thought, but people know, don't realize it's always been taught by teachers of color. Mm-hmm. Look, us being in the classroom is showing our students, you can do it. And I don't know what their it is, but you can do what you want because it is your life and you have that right as a human being. Definitely. Thank you so much. That's very, very powerful to think about that. You know, people have been teaching this for a very long time. People say, you know, oh, it started in the 80s or it started in the late 80s. Um, well, I think, yeah, the social activists in the 60s were definitely theorizing about race then. Um, I'm sure that we could go all the way back to, you know, uh, abolition times and even before then and say how people were using racial, racial, racially based arguments then to fight for their freedom. So definitely, you know, there's that historical perspective and continuing to value our students' voices, as you said seems to be a really powerful way to engage with critical race theory, even though it's not called that, right? You're going to teach right. it anyways, even if it's not like you bringing in the Kimberly Crenshaw text. Like exactly. You're gonna, you know, it's going to be there because like you're saying, it it's everywhere. It's omnipresent. How can you not talk about it, right? You really, mm-hmm. um, you can really kind of have to go out of your way in a sense, right? To not talk about it. Right, exactly. <laughs> and it's one of those, like, I think there's two things that people say, like, don't talk about politics in the classroom. And don't talk about race. And those are two things I was taught when I first started my teaching career is like, these are the two things you avoid. I go, but I thought this is where you talk about those things are in the classroom. This is where you get to say what you feel about politics. You get to say what you feel about race or how you've been experiencing, you know, your life as a person of color. Like, this is it. This is. And then we get censored. And I remember somebody's like, I just don't teach that book. I think it was like Flannery O'Connor. I was teaching it in a class and you know, um, I said, oh, I just wanted to get some, you know, feedback on Flannery O'Connor. How do you teach it? Like, oh, I don't teach any books on race. And I thought, what? Every book can be on race. Like if you can, you use critical race theory, you can really apply that to any book. Yes. So um, it's, and I always say, and I, when people are, you know, think about 
activism and performative activism and I slacktivism, all that mm-hmm. when people are like, you know, I'm all for, you know, people of color, I'm fighting for them. And I always look and I say, I've been fighting for people of color since I became one. Like this isn't yeah, just a slogan. This isn't just a temporary fight. This is for the next generation. This is for my students because I do take my platform seriously as an educator. I read a lot because I feel my students deserve an educated educator. Like I need to be informed. I need to hear what, because they teach me things. Like I don't have social media, but they teach me stuff that's out there. I'm like, tell me more about this TikTok. What is this thing out there? (laughs) So I learned so much from them. And so I feel as my, my job is to teach them things that they may not be exposed to because of their, you know, their times, generations, their research, you know, all those things. So mm-hmm. it's exciting times for me because like I said, I'm coming in hot. <laughs> like this is a new <laughs> COVID done me dirty. Like I am coming <laughs> in hot. People think I'm so passive and quiet. But it's like I I hold back a lot. As you know, Iris, like there's times we'll be in in situations, Iris and I, and there's times where I just want to come out and and really say what I say, but there's always this like, am I being professional enough? Or am I being academic enough there's this like mm-hmm. role flexibility yeah right yeah exactly and you've already talked about how you know you were born into this struggle um and not only that but the different experiences that you have that you continue to have as a seasoned scholar and educator about stereotyping outside stereotyping mm-hmm. towards you and where you belong and where you don't belong right which in some ways you know can make the space of academia feel unsafe many times mm-hmm. um and so thank you for sharing that with us um would you like to like leave us with anything in terms of you know what do you think is the best way uh, respectability politics aside, you know, what do you think is the best way to engage in these difficult conversations with resistant educators? So I thought about this because um, obviously there's there's resistance in a lot of um, frames, like family, um, professionals, you know, neighborhoods. There's a lot of resistance in I don't, sometimes I tread lightly, like, okay, I'm not going to bring up this, or I'm not going to bring up that. But I think what I want to leave off just for myself is that using my voice is what I need to do as somebody who's already gone through the system. Um, you know, I, I feel like there's times that I sold out where I said this isn't right you know when it comes to reading some material and like how people were deconstructing it and reading it um i mean there's so many times where i felt like this this sounds kind of racist you know when people were talking about it or um not recognizing the struggles uh i mean i've been at conferences you know as an educator where i felt that i should have said something more but there's always that fear that i would get fired you know and so i what i learned from my students is to be fearless, okay? Um, I have a family, you know, my my job is very important to me because it not only helps me be part of this platform and help my students, but also, you know, it provides, it's my bread and butter, it's what helps my family. So there's mm-hmm. things where I have to always balance and I don't want to live like that. I wanna be able to call out things that are wrong without yes. having fear of retaliation. So I think my biggest thing that I'm taking out of co- after COVID is using my voice, recognizing, power hoarding, and definitely calling out everybody who I feel 
can do some damage um, to not just me, but others uh, around them. Wow, thank you so much, Cindy. That's so powerful and just leaves me with thinking about what we have to face here in the next couple of weeks. And I really appreciate you putting your spirit out there and your time and your energy. Thank you. And it, you know what? I did all these notes and I didn't use any of them. I just went like, <laughs> holistic on you. <laughs> Hello and welcome to part two of the coalition creating coalitional gestures podcast that's going to be featured on the big rhetorical podcast. And we are so excited about that. I am really excited to be able to introduce our featured guest today. I'm going to allow her to introduce herself in the moment. In a moment, we're going to be continuing our discussion about misinformation in the COVID era, um, particularly from a woman of color academic perspective. We talked a little bit about in part one, um, you know, regarding the movement of critical race theory being something that can be equated with reverse racism or even being anti-white. We're going to be continu continuing our conversation on what it means to be a woman of color academic, going back into our higher educational institutions, wherever they may be, under this umbrella of misinformation, COVID, and certain types of backlash movements to anti-racist ideologies and pedagogies. So I would like to go ahead and introduce our featured guest today, Natasha Jones. I'm going to give her just a second to be able to introduce herself. Hello. Welcome, Natasha. Hi. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah. You want to tell us a little bit about you? Um, where are you at? Like, where do you teach? And what is your work about? Sure. So I am a technical communication scholar. I'm an associate professor at Michigan State in the um, Writing, Rhetoric, and American Cultures Department. And my research primarily focuses on social justice, inclusion, and activism in technical communication, and thinking more broadly about what inclusion, equity, and justice looks like in um, higher ed and academia. Um, so I'm really passionate about those things and thinking about um, ways that we can be more inclusive and more equitable, especially for those of us who are marginalized and multiply marginalized in the academy. Okay, great. That sounds really interesting. Um, do you want to mention maybe one or two publications that you might have out there for us to read? Sure. So I um, am a co-author along with Drs. Rebecca Walton and Drs. Kristen Moore, um, of the book, Technical Communication After the Social Justice Turn, Building Coalitions for Action. And that book came out in 2019. And we basically look at the state of technical communication and how we can build inclusive coalitions and push social justice forward in our field um, so that those of us who are marginalized and multiply marginalized can um, can can actually get our work done, you know, contribute to the academy and to our um, field like we desire to. So I would say that would that's the um, the publication that I'm most probably drawing from and thinking about for the talk today. Oh, okay, great. Yes, definitely. 
um, I think that it'd be great for us to talk a little bit about what the social justice turn means, especially within um, technical communication and how we can continue to be committed to that, right? Um, Yeah, in the midst of misinformation and the ways in which misinformation is everywhere, it's ubiquitous on social media. Right. Um, Yeah. Um, You know, I wanted to also talk a little bit about how we were witnessing certain types of backlash movements to anti-racist ideologies and anti-racist pedagogies. And, um, you know, the one that seems to stick out the most right now is um, the backlash towards critical race theory. But um, I want us to be able to talk more generally because, you know, your work kind of centers on looking at um, the social justice turn and how does that um, affect and play out in technical communication. Um, And so, you know, obviously I don't, I haven't necessarily read any work that specifically centers on critical race theory and technical communication, but I think if we can approach that more generally, that would be great for our audience. And so before getting into that, I wanted to share just a little snippet of uh, Kimberly Crenshaw's words actually on a podcast with Janine Jackson. So let's go ahead and just transition to that here and then we'll start our discussion. Okay, sounds good. Okay, great attention and i think it's partly because people don't imagine materially what they do so part of our campaign is to try to give people a picture of materially what they do we put out just a call to uh folks who experience the consequences of this gag order to tell us what happened and within less than 10 days we got more than 300 stories about talks being canceled, about research projects being halted, about training at the CDC that was about structural racism, contributing to some of the horrific outcomes, disparate outcomes from COVID also being canceled. So this is really having a significant impact, but people just seem to be unaware of it. Yeah, on December 2nd, the Policy Forum's webinar series Under the Black Light focused on this campaign that you're talking about, which is called Truth Be Told and and the, the gag order. And you heard folks saying, you know, like um, Lisa Rice from the National Fair Housing Alliance saying that she can't talk about residential segregation and racial disparities in home ownership, you know, um, mm-hmm. when she's trying to talk about ending housing discrimination. But you've you've started to talk about the roots of this. Like so many things, mm-hmm. Trump didn't create this. Right. But, you know, Trump may be sui generis. He's his own person, but he, he can't pull on strings that aren't there. And there yeah. are historical roots to precisely this type of attack that you're talking about, anti-racism is itself racist. Mm-hmm. This is, this is mm-hmm. there's context there, right? All right. So there we heard from Janine Jackson and a little bit from Kimberly Crenshaw about the effects of mandating um, these halts on critical race theory, but also anti-racist uh, focused trainings. Natasha, do you have any thoughts on what you heard there with that podcast? Uh, sure. I, I, I think I'll talk more generally about just anti-racist um, pedagogies and processes that sure. um, we her see in our universities and academic spheres. Um, 
but I think that one of the things that that touched on um, and that made me think about are the DEI, um, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives in the academy. Um, and it makes me wonder and also worry about what impact this pushback against anti-racist um, um, programs and pedagogies would have on these already kind of um, strained and faltering DEI programs in our academic um, institutions. Um, and uh, we've talked before, and also um, I published a piece in the Community Literacy Journal about how we need to think about um, complicity and complexity um, in DEI programs in our academia, um, academic contexts and academic spaces um, because of the need to think more critically as Patricia Hill Collins talked about how power works across um, the four domains of structural, disciplinary, hegemonic, and interpersonal um, power domains as she refers to as the matrix of domination and how our DEI um, initiatives and programs often don't um, address all four of those domains and remains kind of surface level and interpersonal, right? Thinking about individual actions, which are important, but um, not moving beyond individual actions to think about how things like ideology and culture, things like rules, regulations, bylaws, um, processes, procedures, things like infrastructure um, impact the ways that we can actually do DEI work within the university um, and understanding that DEI work within the university has to not only be transformative and resistant, but it also challenges the university itself infrastructurally, like how a university operates, how a university um, is actually structured as an institution. So um, hearing all the pushback and not, not even speaking specifically about critical race theory, but speaking about the anti-racist programs and pedagogies that you know, our universities have started to implement, it makes me worry for what will come down um, and how these programs will be funded, how they will be supported, and how academics that are doing this DEI work will be protected and um, supported and funded and promoted and all of those kinds of things. So that definitely does, I think, raise concern for me. And I'm not a critical race um, theory scholar, so let me just say that out front. But mm -hmm. it, 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 I think that you know, I can, I can worry ahead of time or be anxious about the ripple effects of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And um, I hadn't necessarily heard of that framework, but I think that yeah, complicity and complexity and um, putting those, you know in comparison with one another and even in contrast to one another and we're look looking at the ways in which they complement one another, I think is really interesting the way that you talk about and Patricia Hill Collins talks about how it's more than just individual actions and there's so many different, it's a network, right? It's like a network of actions um, that come yeah. into play. Yeah, in order for these EDI measures to be successful. And, you know, wanted to talk a little bit about what does it mean, um, you know, as a woman of color and you're in Michigan, um, you know, and, and in terms of your own experience or even what you've just seen or what you've witnessed, 
you know, critical race theory allows us to talk from a counter story perspective. So we don't always have to say it's us. But um, in terms of your own experience with EDI initiatives, um, how do you feel about going back to the university or, you know, for going back, whether it's virtually hybrid or whatever, but going back um, in the midst of COVID with all of these different kind of question marks about EDI work? Yeah, I mean, I I am for one very, um, I don't want to say wary, but kind of leery of how um, academia actually picks up the language of diversity, inclusion, and equity versus how they actually um, engage and enact what's needed to ensure equity and inclusion beyond just representative, a representative diversity. Um, and so I think when uh, about a year and a half ago or whatever, when COVID was just hitting and um, also there was like the, these racial um, tensions and uprising about injustice in our police forces, injustice on our campuses, one of the things I immediately thought about was like, how we have police presence on our campuses and how mm -hmm. that puts our students yes. at risk and how um, that how our 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 campuses can't afford to to see themselves as functioning as these insular bodies and ignore what's happening in our communities and also understand how our, our campus community um, is impacted by um, what's going on out in the communities as well. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess um, thinking about this idea about pushing forward a return to normal, I'm very resistant to that idea. Um, because I feel like normal wasn't working for a lot of us. It wasn't working for Black and Indigenous scholars. It's not working for queer and trans scholars. It's not working for lots of first-gen scholars. It's mm -hmm. not working for a lot of us. And acad academia was not a space that was, you know, built for us. It wasn't, it's not designed to to support us, it's not designed to protect us, right? Mm -hmm. So when we say go back to normal, what does that mean? Does that mean campuses that are, you know, heavily policed? Does this mean campuses that are inaccessible? Does this mean campuses that are antagonistic to our queer and trans fam? Does this mean going back to, you know, uh, the, the um, you know, unequal and and very you know disparate um kind of populations where our student bodies don't look like our faculty and where faculty isn't especially black indigenous queer and trans faculty are not being retained they're not being promoted they're not being protected right so going back to that amid COVID which is still happening with this delta variant I'm like you know how much are we supposed to, you know, take on? Mm -hmm. And while I feel like, you know, a lot of folks or all of us are feeling this pressure, um, I, I am just keenly aware of the way that the multiply marginalized and marginalized are, are feeling this pressure even more so, right? Um, because a lot of folks 
were able to actually during you know COVID actually go home and, and take you know work from online. I've been very privileged and blessed, but a lot of folks weren't able to do that and, and protect themselves and in the ways that needed to to be done. So I think the going back to normal for me is is a scary thought because I think normal wasn't working for a lot of us. And we saw a lot of academic institutions across the country um, really, you know, say, hey, these are the things we care about. We care about community. We care about culture. We care about anti-racism. We care about resisting anti-Blackness. We care about, you know, Mm -hmm. making sure our marginalized and most marginalized faculty, students, and staffs are protected. So how are you going to do that now if you're pushing to go back to normal? Are police still on our campus? Are our faculty being retained and supported? Are our grad students being retained? Like these are the statements that were put out. Now going back to the status quo is unacceptable, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's always my thing when I'm thinking about like what diversity and inclusion and equity looks like in, in the academy. And just to draw on Collins again, it has to be more than just a surface level interpersonal, like, you know, in our individual classrooms, what can we do? Or in our particular syllabi, what can we do? No, it needs to be a structural change. Um, It needs to focus on the structure and infrastructure of the, the institution, as well as the rules, regulations, policies, practices that guide how our institution work and how they function and we just can't go back to that quote unquote normal we we need to fuck it up as one of my um uh i just read one of uh, uh an exam from mm-hmm. one of my uh graduate students i serve on their um their committee um and i want to give a shout out to um ruby mendoza because they they also had me thinking and they that's their term. So um, cite Ruby Mendoza. You know, <laughs> right. <laughs> let's think about how we can do something different and make it, you know, the normal doesn't work. So yeah, uh, that was a long answer to your very short yes. question. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> Do you hear that, everybody? Do you hear, you know, why normal was not necessarily working for some of us folks, for a lot of us folks? And um, I think that you verbalized that and very well, Natasha, you articulated that. Dr. Jones, excuse me. Uh, Very well. Yes, thank you. And um, gosh, you've given me so many things to think about. And, uh, you know, because some people are saying, it's the new normal or, you know, what does the new normal mean? Like now I'm going to go back and I'm going to do, do all of this work. And people are saying like, I'm an ally and I'm an accomplice and I'm going to be on board and I'm going to be doing this. You know, these are the people that are saying they're on board. I'm going to be coming back and, you know, not necessarily thinking about like, quote unquote, what you said, like fucking things up, like let's tear it down and rebuild. Like this thing wasn't working before. Um, but other folks were just like, okay, you know, I'm going to go back and it's going to be new and I'm going to restructure the canon. I'm going to restructure my syllabus. And um, how do you feel about that? Like, what's your reaction to people saying like, okay, this is a new normal. Um, and then, you know, before you answer that question, I, I also just wanted to comment a little bit about 
I, I just wonder, like, had it not been for COVID and everybody being home, and I, we, I know that we've heard this in the media too, but everybody being home, you know, stuck to the screen or on the screen more so than usual, usual and then witnessing, you know, what happened uh, with George Floyd and then Breonna Taylor and witnessing this over and over again. Um, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, and that contributing to what we call quote unquote new normal. How do you feel about those things? Oh, uh, I, I guess right now, I don't know what new normal will look like. And so when folks say new normal, it, it makes me wonder, like, so what does this new normal look like? And how how is it going to be taken up in not only this, like, the social political context, but in the academy and in our classrooms and in our communities? And so I'm really hesitant to be just like, oh, like, yeah, new normal. This is the things that we have to live with or these are the things that we have to deal with because I'm not, you know, I just don't, I don't know what it, what it looks like. And I think that that's one of the benefits of, of coalitions, right. Is to think alongside allies, think alongside colleagues, think alongside, you know, other, um, Black, Indigenous, um, POC, other multiply marginalized groups to, to actually figure out what, re-envision or re-imagine what we can be and what should be. Um, and I think it's, I, and I definitely don't want to make it sound like it's super easy and that, oh, we can just, you know, um, do this this change or change this thing or tweak this thing because I don't think that's the case. I think it's really complex mm -hmm. and that it requires complex coalitional thinking to reimagine what could be. So I, I don't, I, I haven't been using the term new normal because I don't know what that looks like yet. And I'm, I'm super happy to like talk through with other colleagues and other folks about what our, um, what we can do to make things better but mm -hmm. I think that it is definitely going to take a lot of people working toward the changes that we want to see and and a, also a willingness to let go of the status quo let go of how things have been let go of how we think things should be um, and just completely think about what does it mean to be equitable? What does it mean to be just? What does it mean to be inclusive? And I think those are big words and we all have different ideas of what those words means, but like really thinking together in coalition with folks about those things. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, and we have, the work is cut out for us, right? Because we also then have to be, or I think, I don't know, I don't want to speak for you, but, um, you know, I've been trying to think about how to be strategic in entering into these conversations and trying to build coalitions with, you know, other colleagues and scholars, because as you mentioned, you know, we're still at the point to where we realize that um, the faculty is not reflective of our student populations. Our student populations are changing, you know, um, in terms of diversity and in terms of generational status and preparedness and things like that. Not to mention, you know, culture, race, and ethnicity. 
And, um, but, but yes, and what you're saying is that the faculty is still not reflecting that student population. And what does that mean for us? We're faculty, and that means that we work with those faculty. Um, and that means that, you know, those faculty are also, they're circumscribed by these kinds of, you know, ideas of the new normal and anti-racist pedagogy. And they're probably situate themselves in different, you know, places on the spectrum with how to approach anti-racist pedagogy. Some of them saying like, I don't want to do it. Yeah. And some of like, I'm on board. And then you have everything in between, which a lot of it is probably like confusion. Like, how do I do this? And just to bring in a concrete example, and I'm sure you probably saw some of it um, going on, you know, in social media with Asal's blog, Asal Inua's blog and et cetera, how CWPA wanted us to come in and help them to change their, uh, you know, their outcome statement for first year writing programs but then not being ready to institute the changes that we spent seven months working on. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just demonstrative of how difficult these conversations are. And then when you enter into the conversations, the response often is, well, I don't know how to do that, or I don't know how I'm going to do that, or how can I learn that in one year? Or, you know, um, do I really need to put in all of that labor to be able to do this? And, you know, it's kind of like, okay, um, I know I don't have all the answers, but mm-hmm. there's something about, there's something to be said, right, about trying to meet somebody halfway. Um, so do you have any suggestions, like, for strategies or anything like that? I know, I'm like, we all don't, we don't all have all the answers, but do you have any suggestions about, with all this uncertainty going in, and then all of these, um, you know, commitments, anti-racist statements posted on all of these university websites, and et cetera, we're going into the cut in with the faculty, you know, that are not necessarily reflective of the student population, but we have to enter into these conversations. Do you have any suggestions or any thoughts about how you might approach that when you do go back, whether it's virtually or not? Uh, I, I, I'll just keep saying coalitions, like find out where your allies are, who your allies are, find mm-hmm. out those folks that will advocate for you behind closed doors, as well as, you know, um, when you are present, find out who, you know, you can depend on to draw on their allies and their coalitions and just draw as many folks in um, to address whatever strategic goal or um, objective that you have and, and draw on the, the expertise and um, the power, privilege, and positionality of those folks in your coalition. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess, you know, it sounds like, like, find your people, like, find, yeah. like, when we were kids, you know, mom would say, find, find those helpers, look for those helpers. And so I think that that is basically what coalitional work is, is drawing in folks to work strategically toward these these goals that we have and figuring out who's committed and what they can offer like everybody can't do everything people are going to mess up people are going to screw up um and i think that in a coalition there's room to be called in to do the work without that kind of fear of i don't know everything or i don't have the answers nobody's expecting anybody to know everything I have all the answers. Nobody's expecting anybody to never mess up, but the desire to actually do the work and join with other folks who want to do that work and draw on your areas of expertise 
and your your power, your privilege, um, your visibility in order to push that work forward is the thing that I think we have to keep in mind. Like um, coalitions come into being and they fall out of being as needed, right? Mm -hmm. So um, as well as the people who are in a coalition filter in and out, depending on what they can offer or can't offer. Mm-hmm. So realizing that coalitions aren't these static, non-movable, immutable things, they are actually living, breathing, you know, kind of what, what works in the moment, what works for this particular problem, what works for this particular strategic action and what doesn't, who can help with this and who can't. Mm-hmm. I guess that would be my thing. It's like find your people, mm-hmm. find your coalition. So helpful. That is so yeah. helpful. Thank you so much. You articulated that so well. I'm just learning a lot here from you. Um, that is a lot. I think that that is, um, you know, doctors uh, Walton and doctors Moore, um, basically in in the book building coalitions for action that's that's what we're talking about like power privilege positionality and figuring out how we can get stuff done in a coalitional way um, and what that what that means for tech mm-hmm. comp, but also what it means for you know the academy more broadly mm-hmm. wow well that's a perfect transition because I was going to ask a little bit about that like with a definition of a social term, maybe we could start a little bit there, the social term, because I know like the field of writing studies in general, but specifically composition studies um, is predicated somewhat on a definition of a social turn, right? In the 19, late 1960s and early 1970s with the open admissions and uh, Sydney University of New York, et cetera. So that writing studies is really predicated on inclusion and accommodation, et cetera. So with your particular scholarship, um, what what is meant, first of all, by the social turn? So social justice turn movement in, in, in regard to tech comm, because I'm a tech comm scholar, so that's definitely the way I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I approach it. But um, just a focus on justice, equity, and inclusion um, in technical communication as a field and understanding that technical communication itself, even though it can be seen as, you know, objective, neutral, um, and removed, it is at its core a humanistic um, field, right? Our concern is with people, our concern is with being advocates for end users and human-centered design and all those kinds of things. So how can we think about um, technical communication as a field to be more inclusive, more equitable, more just. And I think that um, we mark the beginning of this this turn, not that folks weren't already thinking about these things, but we mark the beginning of this turn in our book, um, Technical Communication After the Social Justice Turn, with Dr. Godwin Aboka's work um, as he was thinking about social justice and started, you know, actually was one of the first folks to use that term social justice um, in his writing mm. um, and, and in his uh, in his research. And so I think what we saw then was um, 
in in these kinds of bits and pieces, other folks were also taking up this this term social justice and or even not necessarily using social justice as a term, but taking up this focus on thinking about advocacy and inclusion in their work, whether it was in their work about design or their work about localization and globalization or their work about pedagogy or their work about, you know, race and ethnicity or their work about you know, mm -hmm. um, feminism, right? So really having scholars starting to say, hey, we can't ignore the social, political and material context that are impacted by the work that we do as technical communicators or that are impacted by technical communication as a discipline or technical communication as a practice, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that it's really picked up steam in the last, I don't know, decade or so, where more folks are, are, are really on board with really thinking through what we call in technical communication, these wicked problems, these intractable problems that are social, political, economic, um, all of those things together. So, um, yeah, I hope that answered your question about how I approach it and how I think I'm thinking about it from within my discipline of technical communication. And I think that, you know, writing studies in general, especially um, rhetoric and composition, was definitely their focus on social justice, equity, and inclusion pre precluded um, mm -hmm. before technical communication making this, you know, field wide, like, acknowledged of the need for social justice and social action. And um, in technical communication, Carolyn Rood in um, one of her articles where she talks about the four big areas, the four big questions that technical communications and technical communicators are grappling with. One of those are social action, right? Um, and so I think then we see this field-wide turn to actually start to engage with those kinds of things. Oh, wow. Thank you so much for giving us that really insightful definition and the history and how you envision that and how it works in the book. Um, so hopefully you all will definitely check that out. I know I will as soon as I can. Um, and so, yeah, I wondered if you could offer just a little bit of reflection here um, before we let you go on, um, you know, everybody's had to, whether they wanted to or not, have to learn uh, you know, whether it's rudimentary or a little bit more advanced, how to take their pedagogies online. And mm. yeah, that's definitely been a struggle. It's definitely been a transition for many folks. And, mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting how these conversations about inclusion and accessibility have taken front and center stage in this transition. And I just wonder, since, you know, your area is technical communication and a lot of these conversations are really centering on inclusivity, accessibility, et cetera, how we might think about including social justice or are those included in social justice, um, you know, relating to thinking about anti-racism, for example. So if we're all taking our pedagogies online and mm -hmm. we're thinking about, yeah, inclusion, accessibility, and then, you know, the way that you were discussing um, social justice and technical communication. Um, can you talk a little bit about how folks might approach the going beyond the inclusion of just having access to the web? 
Does that make sense? Yeah, I I would not say I, that's my area of expertise, but okay. I think um, that part of, I guess for me, that that's part and parcel of being inclusive is thinking about accessibility and thinking not just about it in general, but thinking about it um, specifically. And I, um, for one, am learning a lot from colleagues that um, I speak with, colleagues that I like read their work about more inclusive um, pedagogical practices when we're talking about online pedagogy, um, things like CART, ASL, and I, uh, the um, Association for Technical Teachers of Technical Writing, ATTW conference just passed. Doctors Laura Gonzalez and Doctors Ann Shivers McNair were phenomenal in putting that on um, mm -hmm. under the guise of um, Dr. Angela Haas, who's the president and immediate past president of ATTW, and also with the help of um, Dr. Uh, uh, Kirsten Scott. Mm -hmm. um, who uh, joined us to help think about accessibility, to think about um, uh, inclusion, to think about you know ways to make the conference just really um, engaging, but really also accessible in a way that was just inequitable. And I learned a ton from those folks, mm -hmm. um, just about CART, about ASL, about you know making um, information available in different forms and formats about transcripts. I mean, just a ton. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I, I feel like I'm still learning and I'm, I'm, you know, again, I'm calling on my coalition to help me yeah. to better. Um, and I think a lot of it is, is, is just sometimes asking, you know, your coalition to, to, to take looks at your coursework, to take looks at your course design, and also listening to what our students have always already been telling us they need um, in order to access our, our um, class and in order to make our pedagogy more inclusive, like transcripts, multiple, um, um, multiple ways to engage, mm -hmm. right? Um, access to um, the instructors, access to their peers, right? Um, not necessarily pushing them and funneling them through university accommodations, like thinking about these things ahead of time, like what can you do to make your classroom more inviting and more accessible? And I'm learning a lot um, and I am uh, hoping to do better and better each time. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that that would be my novice, <laughs> not expert. Um, take on that is just to always be open to learning and, and, and listening mm -hmm. on like the structures of the academy says you need this check, check, check. Like, no, what do your students need from you? And I think, um, I do want to acknowledge that, that, that does place a burden on students as well as if we're always saying, oh, well, you know, the institution says you can have this, but not that, or that, but not this, or you have school accommodations to get this, right? So thinking about what we can do as individual instructors on that interpersonal level again, right? Mm -hmm. To make our classrooms more accessible. And I'm just looking forward to learning more and doing better and better and better. And also hearing feedback from my students about what I can do to improve. Um, so yeah, mm -hmm. that's a novice response. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, it's evident, very evident that you did learn a lot there from the, it's ATTW, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, just giving us so many things to think about. There's a lot to think about. And, um, you know, although we might not necessarily have this clear picture in our mind about what it means to return to a new normal, we have so many things to think about. And I'm just glad too, that you really emphasize the importance of coalitions and the importance of dialogue and the importance to continue to be open and willing to learn from one another, um, you know, in the midst of all of this political conflict and obviously in the midst of COVID, there's just so much to think about. So, um, you know, I think that's great to leave us on this note where we can just try to put and start beginning in our minds to put little pieces of the puzzle together one by one. And it's just really encouraging to know, you know, that we have scholars out here that are thinking about this work, that are doing this work, that are really trying to make it accessible for us, right, as educators in higher ed, um, and so that we can pass that along to our students. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Jones, for your time, for your insight on these difficult, complex topics. And um, I just wanted to give you an opportunity. Is there anything else you wanted to share with the audience or any other shout outs you might want to give? No, not really. Just thinking, thank, definitely thanking my co-authors, um, thanking my colleagues, thanking folks in my coalition who they know who they are um, for always pushing me. Thank you for, for my students pushing me. Um, yeah, that's it. And thank you for this opportunity. I really appreciate it.